going to have Sunday school um, on that week due to people going all um, here and there. And so, uh, and I don't think Daniel is either. If I'm remembering, I think uh, all Sunday schools off for next week. There should be a regular service at at three, but um, so so take the week off if you get a chance. Though start brewing on chapter four. So good, so many good uh, things to learn from four and five. And and I would say if you do get an opportunity in the next couple of weeks, read chapter four and five together in in just one sitting. I imagine that's seven and a half, eight minutes, but. Um, there's such a glorious argument there about justification. It is a it is a fantastic thing. So if you get a chance, uh, please do that. Grant, would you read 31, 21 to 31? Um, and uh, Lord willing here, we're going to finish up with the end of chapter 3 and maybe introduce chapter 4 uh, just a smidge today. A couple things to come back to in this. Uh, possibly best paragraph ever, most important paragraph ever written in the history of writing. Romans 3, 21 to 26. Yeah. Starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Good deal, Josh. You pray for us, and um, and Grant has um, some insights on how to connect this to 117 that I'm looking forward to. Yep. Father, thank you for giving us another week to study these precious truths in Romans. Lord, I pray that these uh, this doctrine and uh, this idea of boasting and that would sink down into our hearts help us to understand what justification by faith truly means and i pray that you'd be with our time today and i ask this in christ's name amen yeah amen, so Grant. yeah going back to we started in chapter one uh, with an introduction from paul and then he quickly gets to this righteousness that comes from god in 117 um, and Paul introduces this righteousness but then takes a pause for the rest of chapter 1 and then chapter 2 to sort of introduce why this righteousness is needed. Why do we need a righteousness that's not of our own? Um, but in 117, sort of the theme of the book, uh, he introduces it, uh, starting maybe in 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we've, we've already talked about that, and this is basically a little bit of a review, but we know that that 
strongly parallels what's the same phrase in Philippians, that that righteousness of God is actually righteousness from God, an alien righteousness given from God to us, um, so that we can stand in his sight. And so Paul sort of bookends the bad news um, with the gospel. So he starts with the gospel, then he gives us the bad news, and then he, he sort of ends the bookend with more explicit gospel in 3.21. And so 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And I think it was uh, it was either Shriner or Boyce that talked about this being bookends to the bad news, and they're very connected to one another. I think it's the same righteousness being talked about in 117, because 117, um, they both, and 321, they both show that there is a righteousness that is from God that's not of our own. Both show that it is by faith, that it's accessed by faith, and both show that the Old Testament bears witness to it being by faith. So coming from um, <coughs> righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith there's the element of faith, and then as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's paralleled in verse 21, that but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's the same thing that Paul brings back up at the end of all this bad news uh, that he introduced in 117, but he gets a little bit more explicit in 321 that this faith is in a singular person, Jesus Christ. The faith that we access the righteousness of God through is uh, Jesus Christ in all his perfection. And we introduced that last time with the word propitiation, which is meaning the appeasement of God through an atoning sacrifice. And so that just rolls us right back into propitiation that um, this faith in Jesus Christ, he is the one who propitiates God, and now we can appeal to God to treat us on the basis of the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, just like we talked about with the tax collector where he says, um, God be propitiated toward me towards me. Treat me on the basis of the atoning sacrifice that has been made. Yeah. yeah. Josh, any insights on that? No, that was that was really good. Yeah, it's so good. <clears throat> and you might remember that six times from 31, 21 to 31, uh, faith is used. And we're going to come back to that. It's an interesting uh, quote that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has um, about faith that Josh is going to read for us. But um, it's emphasized certainly in this, in this passage. Spurgeon defined that faith as believing that Christ is what he said to be and that he will do what he has promised to do and then we expect this of him. We believe that Christ is what he said to be, that he will do what he has said that he's promised to do and then we expect that of him. And so I thought that was a good, um, a good kind of way to think through that. We did kind of finish on propitiation last week in 25 and 26. Um, to go back just a little bit and review, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. And then in 32, once again, it was to show his righteousness at this present time so that he may be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. When I want to come back to that um, just a little bit. In the old NIV, it said to demonstrate his righteousness. What's well, a good demonstration my dad would tell us oh i wish we could have been there but my dad would talk about a demonstration that he saw had to be 1973 and this is in an ffa where's uh kaylee blevins when we need her an ffa demonstration where the parents came 
for this demonstration. And, uh, and the high school students were doing Future Farmers of America. Every boy in Nebraska is in Future Farmers of America, whether you want to be or not. You just, it's just, you just goes with the territory. <laughs> so they're showing this demonstration. So my friend Goose and his buddy Kermit, are doing this demonstration just by those two names you should say something shady is going to happen and they decide that they are going to demonstrate about grain dust grain dust is serious business and grain dust blows up stuff and so they took full advantage of making a demonstration of this they built a barn and uh like a this big put like a bunch of animals in it and this and, and so he's He's, Goose is getting up and kind of introducing this whole demonstration. You got all the parents there and people in the gym. And um, in our school we grew up in. And so his um, builds all this up. And he said they should have, the parents should have known. And our advisor, like the FFA advisor, Miss Blevins, should have known at this point that something was fishy when they got behind a desk like this that they had turned over sideways and they him and uh, Kermit hid behind that after he, the demonstration was starting to happen and they had found something just short of dynamite and they blew up this barn to where my dad said my dad was the one that told me I wasn't there but my dad said when he looked up he saw part of the barn had hit the top of the gym that had been blown up that much animals not real animals but these little play animals that they had scattering everywhere and goose said he got up and he said one line after it was all over and shook his head like this and said grain dust is serious business and then he sat back down you know and i'm just thinking demonstrate all that to say demonstration what makes a good demonstration my dad didn't go to heaven until probably eight years ago he talked about that story from 1973 to 2014, what makes a good demonstration? Something that you remember. And I want to say, do we forget what kind of a demonstration there was on the cross? You know, when you look at this passage and how incredible it is, this is to show his righteousness. God's demonstration on the cross by sending the Lord Jesus to die for us. And Jesus willingly demonstrated God's righteousness. God's righteousness that now he is imputing into our account. And so that is now credited to us. So he is just and the justifier, both of those two things. He is the... and, and um, I don't remember which commentator, but I went and read it. It's pretty neat in 25 and 26, really starting from 24. This demonstration, not only uh, is this to show that the source of our justification is the grace of God. This is all kind of coming back to justification here. The grounds of our justification is the work of Christ in 25. The means of our justification is faith. And the effect of our justification is is a union with Christ. Okay, so we're both so God is both just and the just fire in in that way. And um, I think that uh, one of the commentators says God is able justly to justify the unjust. God is able to justly justify 
the unjust. And that we went there a little bit last week. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, either both of you on this, is that it's not that he makes us righteous. It's that he declares us righteous. We're not perfect after we're justified, right? Practically. Positionally, though, we are. And he's going to go to great lengths to make that, that, make that argument in chapter 4, 5, 6. And, and it's going to be really neat. Either Thoughts on either of those things? I, I was just looking or thinking through justification by faith. And I think we'll pick it up more maybe in chapter 5 when we get to imputation. Mm-hmm. But justification carries with it not only just pardon for sin, but also Christ's perfect righteousness given to us. So our, our negative balance is paid for through Christ's death, and I don't know, what, whatever's in the green and the positive, through faith in Christ, his life, his perfect righteousness is imputed to us. That all comes with justification. Yes, <clears throat> and, and that's huge. Don't forget that, that you, when you get your, site, your uh, spiritual bank account, um, today, even on Sunday, that thing comes, even in the mail on Sunday, it's going to have a sideways eight in the amount of righteousness you have. Is that not just fascinating? Because you and I both know that we don't always act righteously. But yet, positionally, because all of Jesus' righteousness has been imputed into our account, credited to our account. And that, once again, is why he lived 33 years of a perfect life, because we have not lived... 33 minutes of a perfect life, it's all been credited to us. And so that's why this is not antinomianism. We're going to come to that. This is not so that we can sin like crazy because that's what Paul's going to get accused of here, you know, because he makes justification so thorough. And I do want us to grasp that, how thorough justification is that. Every sin has been washed away. So we have days that are more sinful than others, don't we? And on that most sinful day, an infinite amount of righteousness minus all our sin is still an infinite amount of righteousness. That is still what our account um, consists of, which is just so fascinating. When 27 to 31, you're thinking there, uh, Grant, do you have something... To throw out there? Uh, well, I was just thinking back, back with what you were saying. It's so interesting to see, you know, we introduced 117 and how it relates to 321. But with Paul, that seems to just happen over and over with how he introduces something. He predicts the response of the reader, and then he dives into that response. So he introduces an alien righteousness in 117, and then it's, why would we even need that? Then he just indicts all of mankind and yeah. the rest of one through two, Jew and Gentile. Um, then he anticipates the response of the Jewish people, um, and he brings up some arguments there and, his, and talking about God's divine sovereignty and the election of uh, Jews and Gentiles, and he comes back to that in 9 in way more detail, mm-hmm. and then he introduces in more theological detail the gospel in chapter, starting in chapter 3 than he did in 117. Um, and then we get into this question of how can God be just if he just forgives us of our sin and so he introduces propitiation and then we get into um, that it's always been by faith that um, in his divine forbearance that he passed over former sins and then he comes back to that in Romans 4 with it's always been by faith with Abraham yeah. and then he talks about imputation how can we have this righteousness in chapters 5 and 
then in chapter six he introduces what you were talking about that it's not antinomianism that it's yeah. that we don't just continue to sin so that grace may abound it's, it's it, really no. interesting to see how how, how this he, is all laid out how very he argues perfectly yeah yeah it's very good. Oh, so beautiful how he how he goes goes about it. i really am glad you pointed that out remember <laughs> that god never sweeps sin under the rug every sin is punished right and it's going to be the unbeliever paying for their own sin in for eternity in hell or for the believer every one of those sins was paid for on the cross when jesus says it is finished that meant that every one of those sins of the elect were paid for on the cross i remember that boy coming back to f f a one more time this time we were um corn judging we were trying to figure out what what made one piece of corn better than another? I have no idea why we were doing this, but we were doing it, and Mr. Goystein would leave, our advisor. He should have never left. And so what are we going to do with the corn? We're going to throw it at each other, right? We'd start with a kernel or two, and then it would just be handfuls. And you can imagine what it looked like. And Dr. Hockham is saying, oh, man, I'm glad I, I'm at a college setting right now where they're far more mature than that. But uh, that is what was a disaster. So as soon as Mr. Goystein's coming back, we can see him coming through the way. Oh, no, here he comes. So we would try to sweep that corn under the rug. How is he not going to see? There was a pile of corn under the rug. How is he not going to? He looks under there, and he's like, what have you guys been doing with the corn that you're supposed to be judging? You're throwing it. Right? He knew it. But our, is, our sins are never swept under the rug. It's never a deal where God just says, ah, that's okay. He sacrificed his son. There's two ways that you can tell how serious sin is, right? Number one, that hell is eternal, right? And that the unbeliever never, ever, ever pays off even one of their sins. Why? Because that sin is against an infinitely holy God. It requires infinite payment, infinite punishment, Right, And the other way that we know how serious sin is, is that he sacrificed his son. He killed his son. And for those of you in here that are parents, you know that we would do anything other than that. And that's what God chose to do. And so that's how he can be just. He paid for the sin. Right? The sin is paid for. Our sin is paid for. It's just not by us. It was paid for by the, by the Lord Jesus. So now we see three kind of, he goes back to the diatribe. Isn't that interesting? He's back to asking these questions, 27, um, 28, the diatribe. Josh, you're the, one of the, Miss Elizabeth and you are the experts on diatribe. Can you remind us of diatribe? I think Miss Elizabeth is the true expert, <laughs> but uh, he does kind of go back to this uh, I don't. I don't know if you call it a rhetorical style, where he's kind of going back and forth with uh, an imaginary disputant and asking some hypothetical questions to draw out these implications a little bit. Yeah. So he, like Grant said, he anticipates these objections based off what he's just unfolded in twenty-one to twenty-six, and I think, you know, whether this is a, a literal person or someone hypothetical, the point being that. Um, He's trying to draw out, uh, you know, what becomes of boasting, and then the, 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 there's no discrimination, and then, of course, there's no antinomianism here in these next few verses. Good. And if you look at 27 28, then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold 
that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So you see how absolutely ridiculous it would be if we would boast about it. It is something that God's done. We have no uh, grounds to boast. And yet, that does seem to be kind of part of, of, of our nature, is we kind of want to grab some credit here. Josh, don't you think? Yeah. What do you have? Um, I think one of the things Paul, I think, is trying to do here is that the, possibly responding to two potential objections. One from the Jewish side, one from the Gentile side. Um, but, but coming back to your question, I think the, the Jews probably would have been susceptible to this boasting. I think they probably, uh, you know, wanted to boast in their covenantal status, which we talked about before, and then maybe some of their law-keeping, thinking that their adherence to the Mosaic law, you know, everything written in the first five books of the Bible, would kind of put a claim on God that he would have to do something for them. He would have to, to say that they are right in his sight. And you see Paul is trying to debunk that completely and say there, there is no boasting through justification by faith. There is no room for it. When we truly understand justification by faith, it removes any kind of human element of, of boasting or thinking that we can earn God's favor. Yeah, good, great. Anything on boasting? Um. Yeah, I think it was um, Boyce who said that we boast in, he said, I think three things, our morality, the things that we do, or we're tempted to boast in these. Um, some people may be tempted to more so boast in their law-keeping or their adherence to things of the Christian faith. Some maybe wouldn't go down that route, but they would definitely boast in their feelings of how they feel on a particular worship day or how tender their heart is towards God. Not that these are bad things, but we can sometimes equate those to the grounds by which we are able to approach God because we have this mm -hmm. soft heart towards Him or we have these feelings towards Him in a certain way on a certain day. Or maybe our knowledge. Um, that one, I think, is a huge one. And it's really one of the most curious ones to me is because the more knowledge we have, the more responsibility we have to adhere to the things that we know. But sometimes it's always, or sometimes it's the opposite of that. At least for me, it's like, I don't know if you've ever been in an argument with someone or you've seen a debate between two people and someone has really no interest in it until they hear a fact that they know is wrong and then they jump on it and pounce on it, even though maybe they aren't interested in the argument whatsoever, but they just don't like that what you said was wrong. That has happened in the past. And so... We think uh, because we know we are good in the sight of God. We know all this about justification. We know about propitiation. We know about the atoning sacrifice of Christ, um, the good news of the gospel. We have all this theological knowledge that somehow that accelerates us higher compared to someone uh, who, who, doesn't, who doesn't have it. And I think it's, the, it's just the exact opposite because we know from Scripture that those that knew more will be responsible for greater judgment if they don't respond to, to what they know. I think, um, I didn't write down where this was from, but I, I copied it from either Matthew or Luke. I think it's Matthew. And then in verse 20, then he began to denounce, this is Jesus talking, the cities um, where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, 
they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done and you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So we see that there's a responsibility for the knowledge we have. But it's sometimes we're tempted because we know some fact. We therefore think you know, we, mm-hmm. we can boast in the sight of God. But God strips yeah. that away from us. Even if we don't say it, I like that, Grant. Even if we don't say it, could you guys think of some ways that maybe we boast even without, we know better than to say it sometimes. Josh, you have something on the Gentiles. I'd like for you guys to think about that. I'd like to hear from you in a second. Did you did you cover the Gentiles already? Yeah, I, I think I was thinking of that with the wrong verse. I think that was maybe 28 and 29. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're coming back <laughs> to those guys. Yeah. Um, what do you think? I made a list of some things that I'll, I just think it sneaks in if we're not careful. Where do you think we're sort of tempted to feel a little bit um, superior, maybe to the unbeliever here? Even if we're not going to say it, we probably know better not to, to, than to say it. <laughs> and affection, what you were talking about, uh, that was a really good point. <laughs> yeah, because we might know better than, know more than someone else. But it's just not for us to boast about that. Good. What else? I was a little curious about this by faith. I think I sometimes hear this from our students at school a little bit to be like, well, you know, I had the faith to believe. Like, I can almost make a claim that uh, I had more faith than someone else. And we forget that even that faith is a gift from God. You, you want to read? Sure. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a pretty interesting little paragraph on this. I thought that helped to make sure that we realize that faith is not a work. You know, it's not something that we muster up on our own. It's not that a we don't deserve a wage for the faith that we're going to get. That's what he's going to describe in chapter 4. Yeah, Lord Jones says, Faith is nothing but the instrument of our salvation. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that we are justified because of our faith. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that we are justified on account of our faith. The Scripture never says that. The Scripture says that we are justified by faith or through faith. Faith is nothing but the instrument or the channel by which this righteousness of God in Christ becomes ours. It is not faith that saves us. What saves us is the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect work. It is the death of Christ upon Calvary's cross that saves us. It is his perfect life that saves us. It is his appearing on our behalf in the presence of God that saves us. It is God putting Christ's righteousness to our account that saves us. This is the righteousness that saves. Faith is but the channel and the instrument by which his righteousness becomes mine. The righteousness is entirely Christ's. My faith is not my righteousness, and I must never define or think of faith as righteousness. Faith is nothing but that which links us to the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Hmm. Yeah, I, to me that was a helpful way to calibrate, recalibrate a little bit of that, how we think about uh 
that faith. I listened to a few things. I thought, boy, this is kind of tempting at times to boast in this way. Have you heard a testimony or maybe has our testimony somehow brought glory to ourselves? I thought after reading this, I thought this is really good that we remember that our testimony is not about us. Our testimony is not about us. Tomorrow, uh, Caitlin Cato, Caitlin Wood, is going to get a chance to share at FCA about her, um, the way the Lord has brought her to himself and, uh, and just changed her dramatically. Um, tomorrow at, at FCA in Madison County. And what's really amazing about that is that she just she told me on the phone, I just want to make sure that this testimony is not about me because it's not. And I thought that's just really true. So when we're sharing our testimony with somebody, let's make sure that it's God-centered because it, it has to be. Otherwise, it's not really... Uh, an accurate picture of what really went on. Maybe secondly, salvation has many benefits to us, right? Thousands of them. But it's really primarily for God's glory. God did save you, and, and there are so many great things that happened because of that. But it wasn't for your sake. It was for his glory. It was for his sake. And I make salvation, my own salvation, kind of man-centered, I'm afraid, sometimes. Or even when I'm sharing with somebody, I'm like, hey, look what will happen to you if you become a believer. No longer will you fear death. You get an abundant life in Jesus. And maybe need to shift that a little bit more in explaining how they have offended a righteous God. And his wrath is on them. And make that more um, God-centered. Number three. John 3.30, John the Baptist says, let me decrease, let him increase. When we remember how we're saved through uh, God's grace alone, we will, I think, have that mindset a little bit more. Let me decrease, let him increase, just as John the Baptist. Number four, anytime we boast um, about Jesus, um, anytime we can, let's do it. Let's make take more... Um, opportunities to boast about Christ and it reminded we've gone back to this a, a couple times but you might remember 14 15 and 16 um, in chapter 1 and Grant was uh, there earlier but remember what Paul how he saw this 14 I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians both to the wise um, and to the foolish so I am eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation everyone who believes for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Let's take more advantages to brag, to boast on what Christ has done. And uh, let's not... I've left way too many of those on the table. And, uh, and, and I want to be a little bit more aggressive. Josh, you've been a good uh, example to us on, on that for sure, um, Chronic. Um, and then, finally, um, it's God's alone is his work in justification. In sanctification, when we get to chapter 6, we're going to see that it is, it's, it's up to us to fight sin. We get into the game at that point. But 
we're only in the game because of what God's done and how he's done it. And that is him, his work alone. So now, 29 and 30 here, we're shifting into Josh. I want to hear your uh, thoughts here on the Jew. and the, that There's no, uh, you'll read 29 and 30 because there's, it's um, no discrimination. Yep. And them as Jew and Gentile, for us, it might be in the way we see it a little bit differently. Yep, 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. I think he's, Paul here is highlighting the, the universal applicability of the gospel for, for all people. Uh, he provides one salvation, and this is far from being a, a narrow or exclusive uh, thing limited to certain people groups. It, it's wide open to everyone who will come, certainly here for the Jew and for the Gentile. But I even think for our day and age, uh, you know, there's no race or class or nationality or socioeconomic status or age that is, um, has, a, has a, you know, a corner on the gospel. That's not how... God's free, free grace is offered. Um, but this is what I was going to say about those two prejudices maybe that Paul is kind of correcting here. And I got their voice highlighted this, and I thought this was so good. But for the Jew, they would have believed in one God. They would have been monotheistic to the core. Uh, but they would not have believed that salvation was for all. They would have held that it was just for the, for the Jew or the Gentile proselyte who you know, converted to Judaism and then followed all of the things in the Torah in the first five books of the law. And, um, and then for the Gentile, um, I think Boyce said there were more gods in, the, in this time in Greece and, and later Rome than people. I mean, they just had a, a rampant uh, polytheistic culture here. So they would have held that there was a, a possible salvation for all, but, but not one true God. So they would have held to a, a tolerance without a monotheism. But I think Paul is saying here the gospel is for, for everyone, the, the self-righteous or, and the grave sinner. Uh, everyone is corrupt, but through faith and not adherence to the law or a system of works does um, God's righteousness come to us. And that's really good news. Um, uh, Jesus said in John six thirty seven that uh, whoever comes to me, he will not drive away. I thought Boyce was so good to say, who can come to Christ? Anybody. And when can they come? They can come anytime. Uh, there's no limitation. Christ's offer for salvation is open to all. <clears throat> good. Grant? Nothing there? Nothing there. Good. Um, so there is no, first of all, there's no boasting. The boasting is excluded. 27, 28, 29, and 30. There's no discrimination. And everybody is saved, not by works, but through faith, as uh, we saw earlier there. This has never been a deal by doing good works. Old Testament, New Testament, we are going to come to that through argument uh, more in chapter 4. Okay. Finally, there's this small little verse here. That's, uh, that he's going to come back to at the end of chapter 5. And probably have to read that last verse in chapter 5 too because it's so good. But in verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, right? Remember that? Thousand times no? 
What a ghastly thought. What a ghastly thought to think that uh, you would overthrow the law by this faith. Okay? The law is important. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Josh. Okay, the law is so confusing to me sometimes in Romans. What he means and what he doesn't mean by the law. But here, can you help us there? Yeah, well, I could try. Um, usually we just go to Grant at this point, right? Usually we do. He said I live with a lawyer for two years, so I got to have... <laughs> I like that logic. I thought that was really good. About all that. Bring no. in Gage. you got to bring Gage into it sooner or later here. Yeah. You, you might be getting a call tonight, too. Yeah. Uh, Paul does use the law a couple of different ways. Even in Romans, he's using it a, a few different ways, but... Um, his focus on justification by faith alone, not a, you know, not by works of the law, New said kind of gave Paul a, a little bit of an anti-law flavor to his teaching, and so, uh, in twenty-eight and verse twenty-eight and verse thirty-one, we see a criticism of the law, but then an affirmation. So, verse twenty-eight, we hold that the one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then 31, there's the affirmation, uh, do we overflow the law by this faith? By no means. But he also does this earlier in this same section, verse 21, the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law, but the law and the prophets born witness to it. So we see in Paul, he's, he's kind of has these, um, a, a, a criticism of the law and then an affirmation of it. But I think what he's getting at here in 31 it's clear to say that there, it plays no part in justification. The law and justification, they're, they're not congruent. By the works of the law, we're not justified in God's sight. I think that's beyond clear in Paul's argument so far. But he's not saying we just throw it completely out, that it has no uh, meaning for the Christian life. Um, Boyce said that the law teaches that all are sinners and that the punishment is death. And only a, an exact fulfillment of the law are we justified. Uh, and then Schreiner said, A righteousness of Christ apart from the law doesn't mean we can depart from the, no the moral norms of the law. Uh, these are now part of the law of Christ. So there are some different takes on it, but I think at least we can say uh, in uh, as the Heidelberg Catechism did that there is sort of a threefold use of the law. And I think, you know, the first use might be a mirror reflecting uh, the perfect righteousness of God and then our failure. Give, law gives us a knowledge of sin. That was verses, what, 9, or, uh, nine through 20 of chapter 3. Mm -hmm. Then there's a second use. Uh, the, the law has a civil use, restraining evil and vice. I think here Paul is getting at this third use of the law for the Christian life. And it is... Uh, a guide for the believer. So once we've been justified by faith, now we see the law as a way to please God. It reveals what God uh, hates and what he loves, and we seek to conform our lives uh, to the law to please God. And um, to, to love God is to obey his law. John, Jesus in John 14, 5 said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And so to um, to walk in a way that pleases God, we need to know uh, what his statutes are, what his rules are, especially laid out in the Ten Commandments, but also in the full Old Testament moral law. 
brings me to thinking back to, and I think Ms. Elizabeth posted uh, Dr. Law and Dr. Grace by Lester Rolfe. It's a good, it's an interesting read where he heads back to where Dr. Law used to be a crusty old doctor. When we first uh, see him, he's like a, a, an abrasive almost. Like it. But once we know the Lord Jesus, then Dr. Law is, we want to run to him. We want to know God's guidelines. Sneak, and this is two months from now, but please sneak over to chapter 5. The last two verses of chapter 5 and the first two of chapter 6 are so good on this uh, idea. Paul, again, so thorough, so thorough on justification that someone might say, right, in our wickedness of our hearts, we might say, oh yeah, now all my sins have been washed away as far as he said, my actions don't matter anymore, right? Well, then I'm just going to have a sin fast. Sin like crazy, because it doesn't really matter. Well, look what he, how he addresses that verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Do you see how ridiculous the, their argument is? But do you see that thinking? To where it'd be like, oh, wow, if more sin means more grace, then I'll just sin more. Then I get more grace. Right? Isn't grace a good thing? Grace is a great thing. So I'll sin. So I'll sin more. It's backwards. And in that, in that, in in that's what he's going to say. So then... So that as sin reigned in death, grace may also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So now he goes to a little diatribe again, right? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Guess what? What a ghastly thought. By no means. What a ghastly thought that is. How can we who died to sin live in it? And he is going to come back to that in verse 15. In chapter 6. Chapter 6 is so, so great on this. And I can't wait to get there on sanctification. And so, by no means are we ever to say the law doesn't matter. It can't save us. But it is really something that once we know the Lord Jesus, we live according to what he commands us to do. And so, you see in verse in going back to chapter 3, there's verse 31, there's no antinomianism, which just would mean that we continue to sin so that grace may abound. That is not um, at all what he's saying. Final thoughts from you guys. Let me read uh, this, and I want to hear from you. Four things. Um, I think this might have been Boyce that closed up with. God has provided a righteousness. Now, I'm kind of covering these last 10 verses here. God has provided a righteousness of his own for men and women, a righteousness that we do not possess ourselves. Boy, he's been abundantly clear there, hasn't he? This righteousness is by grace. It's undeserved. We've never deserved this righteousness. How overwhelming that is. And our life can be uh, a living testimony, a living uh, um, example of this we're going to see in chapter 12 later. It is the work of the Lord Jesus in dying for his people, redeeming them from their sins, that has made the grace of God's part possible. Only by Christ dying for his people can we get in on this grace. And then number four, this righteousness, which God has graciously provided, becomes ours 
through simple faith. It's not the amount of faith that's the issue. It's who this faith is in. So today, I guess our challenge would be, are we putting faith in our own abilities? Or do we only realize, I have nothing to bring to the table. I only am have to put my faith in Christ. Any closing thoughts? I, Jerry, I'd love to hear your closing thought from you. I feel like when I'm studying so much, I kind of getting in the weeds, making sure I'm trying to hold all the terms right and understanding everything that goes on. But, um, I mean, any tips for us on letting this really lead to worship and rightly glorifying God in it and, and truly shaping our, our lives in a profound way? I do hope that it's becoming really enjoyable. That the argument is, um, I do think that as we bathe our minds through Romans, it just becomes more, it shapes the way we operate. And it becomes a book that we come back to and back to more and more just because of how logically it, it helps us to understand uh, the gospel and then our response to that. And I think that in the, uh, and I don't know if this is answering your question, Josh, but just our own sin then leads to justification, leads to sanctification. 9 through 12 are so great on God's sovereignty, his providence, and how things operate. And then the application from 12 to 16. And so even when we're sharing the gospel, I hope that we're using Romans in this. My guess is what am I, I was thinking about this today or yesterday. Uh, might have been even Friday to just think, I hope that as you bathe your mind in Romans, it becomes so enjoyable to you where you're going to come back to it and back to it and back to it because it happens. You just can't get enough. This is so life-changing um, when we really start to to get it out. I don't know. How is it impacted you guys just in the in the three months oh that was really good I think sometimes I just have to kind of stay take a step back and think about these realities of what took place you know and not so much just I mean it we have to have a right knowledge of these things for them to really sink down into our hearts but when you survey and grasp and I don't know that we'll ever fully grasp it but a little bit more every time the more we meditate on it what took place the glorious nature of justification by faith that God declares us righteous in the courtroom of heaven and nobody else can take that away right we guys spend a lot of time in chapter 8 proving that so, the I security mean, of that yeah <clears throat> great yeah I'm it has been really enjoyable for me to, to learn this stuff. Um, I think the theological terms that I've had in my head, like justification and sanctification, and like especially I keep coming back to it over and over, but propitiation, it's just I don't think I had quite an understanding that I needed to on propitiation. And reading and studying this, it has filled it out. And I know this Easter I'll be thinking about that. It, it will sort of change the way. I think the more I come to know what's going on in Romans, um, the more I'm just sort of in awe of what God has done, how it all connects together to the Old Testament. Um, it, it truly is amazing to me. And as that gets, you know, as that knowledge gets filled out into each of these little compartments I had um, with these terms, I don't know, it just 
makes me more thankful for what God has provided in Christ for us. Good. Could you ask him to give us that kind of mindset, as, especially as we head into next weekend and we think about his death and resurrection? Sure. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have provided your word so that we can understand and by your spirit you enlighten our minds to understand it um, correctly. Father, I pray that we would come to know it more clearly and correctly and that it would not just be a head knowledge but that it would impact us. And Father, as we come into Easter um, and think about some of the glorious things that have been accomplished, um, the death of your son, um, propitiation of your wrath away from us, um, are, are being united to him by his blood and a death like his and the hope that we have that we will be um, united to him in a resurrection one day, Father, that we will have resurrection bodies that you will provide for us, Father. I pray that um, we would have a hunger and yearning to know more about what, is, what has taken place and what will take place through your word, Father, what you have revealed to us in your word and that that would lead us to a deep sense of thanksgiving and worship especially even heightened this this coming weekend father as we uh, think and celebrate the death burial and resurrection of your son and his ascension to sit at your right hand um, conquering death and us being united to him father in that and i thank you for it i pray that we would all understand it more fully and that we would live differently because of it and Father, I pray that you would strengthen, strengthen Mark as he delivers uh, more things from your word and that those would only add to our worship and all of you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Think of the demonstration of righteousness and that that righteousness has been imputed to your account. Thank you.